Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for a new Fenway Rundown. Chris Cotillo, your host here in Minneapolis. Sean McAdam back in Massachusetts as the Red Sox take on the Twins for a four-game series at Target Field. Red Sox are hot right now, five-game winning streak. We're going to go across the field, talk to Derek Falvey, a Lynn, Massachusetts native and the president of baseball operations of the Twins. Derek was kind enough to give us some time during the series. We talk about a few things, his New England roots, uh, why he turned down the Red Sox back in 2019, Carlos Correa, Christian Vasquez, who hit a big home run last night, uh, accounting for the only runs that the Twins scored against James Paxton. And then Derek's expectations for the trade deadline, which I thought were pretty interesting. So appreciate the time from Derek as we do all of our guests. And here he is without further ado. Welcome to this week's episode of Fenway Rundown with Chris Cotillo. I'm Sean McAdam, and we're happy to have with us this week, the president of baseball operations for the Minnesota Twins, Derek Falvey, whose team is hosting the Red Sox in a four-game series at Target Field, one of the more underrated ballparks in all of baseball. And we thank Derek for taking the time to join us. Good morning, Derek, and thanks for thanks for uh, being on with us. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, good to see you here. Um, for those who don't know, Derek has deep New England roots, having grown up in Lynn, Massachusetts. And uh, I'm wondering first, Derek, if you could talk about uh, your your baseball fandom growing up in New England and your experiences as a as a young Red Sox fan, and maybe what you remember about uh, going to games at Fenway and rooting for the Red Sox as a, as a young boy. Yeah, you know, I, I have a, a lot of connections back there still. My whole family lives there, but my parents are, are, are still in the same area. My, my sister lives in, in Boston with her um, husband and her kids. So uh, it's still it's still deep in my, my roots, right? And uh, when I think about baseball for me and where it all started, it was with fandom around the Red Sox, around my family, around my grandfather, my uncles, you know, everybody who, who loved the game. The passion for the game of baseball in the Boston area is, is, is special, and it, it's rooted in, in me. And I remember as a young kid uh, – I watched mostly early 90s to mid 90s Red Sox teams. So everything from uh, Mo Vaughn to John Valentin. I love playing shortstop. I used to catch from time to time. I kicked my leg out like Tony Pena did. So trust me, there were uh, there, there were fun, fun memories for me in, in baseball and, and certainly close to my heart. You talked about the formative experience of growing up as a baseball fan in New England, uh, Derek. And, and I'm always struck when I look around the game and see the inordinate number of New England natives who are in management positions throughout Major League Baseball, both in the past and, and currently. I mean, in, in a matter of seconds, I came up with a dozen names from 
uh, people that you well know, of course, Neil Huntington, Josh Burns, uh, Theo Epstein, both Duquettes, Jim Beatty, Ben Charrington, yourself, Jed Hoyer, Chris Antonetti, Mike Hazen. What's in the water in New England that makes young boys want to grow up and be baseball executives? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I did know all those names that came before. Many of those came before me and honestly are some of the people that I looked up to and, and idolized from a distance as I was going through. And uh, just that connection to have that, you know, in, I think there's something unique about growing up as a Red Sox fan, growing up in New England, the passion for the game. It isn't just about, I still see it when I go back to Fenway Park, it isn't just about enjoying being a fan of the game it's actually understanding the game and digging into it I mean the, the fans there certainly understand it and they go along with it you don't need any prompts on the scoreboard to, to navigate what's going on in the game and I think that really does stand out there and, and you get to know it and it's it's through your family it goes back generations and then certainly as I was watching through those 90s years and early 2000s and another person I'm close with who isn't from New England but is critically connected forever is Terry Francona who I got to work with for a lot of time in Cleveland and just the impact and understanding how, of what he did and his leadership and how he led as a manager there for those years. Those are all formative years for me in my baseball life and uh, something that probably underpins everything I do today. Derek, you have been with the Twins since 2016, but in October 2019, and I think Lavelle Neal was the one who reported this, there was at least a quick discussion or a chance when the Red Sox were looking for a new uh, head of baseball operations, obviously the job that went to Heim Bloom. Why was it for you at that time, um, you know, you, I think declined to be interviewed. What went into that decision at that time to, to stay in Minnesota and keep you know, doing the job you were doing? Well, I think the focus for me, you know, and certainly as that process unfolds, you watch it from a distance. I mean, I had a job. I still have a job, you know, ultimately. Mm. And, and when I got a chance to join Cleveland a lot of years ago, uh, I got a chance to develop and learn from a lot of great people there. I grew through the organization there. I got here at the end of 2016. And my focus has always been on where my feet are and, and what I'm doing and trying to do the best I can for the group I'm with. I uh, never really focused on anything else. And, and ultimately, um, you know, certainly through my first few years in Minnesota, when you dive into an organization, this is true back when I was a fan of the Red Sox, when I was working for Cleveland and now uh, working for Minnesota, you get so in, in deep and ingrained with what you're trying to do and the people you're working with. And it's about all the things that you can do together as a team. The best part about this job is that you get to work as a team, as a part of a team. Yeah. When you sit in this seat, you have different responsibilities and you feel that that pressure and, and what that means. But I don't feel any differently than when I was an intern, which is walk through the doors, uh, love the people you're working with, try and work on challenging projects. I learned that from Mark Shapiro to Chris Antonetti to, mm -hmm. to Mike Chernoff and ultimately to the time I got to spend here and with Tito. So really proud to be a, a twin and, and um, really proud to, to continue to help lead this organization. That's always been my focus. You talked about, obviously, your time in Cleveland now, you know, all the time in Minnesota both organizations and obviously Cleveland has the uh, reputation for this, maybe more than anybody developing young pitching, homegrown pitching. We're starting to see here in Boston. I say here in Boston as I sit here in Minnesota, but you know what I mean? Um, the Red Sox doing that with Bayo, with Whitlock, how Cutter Crawford to an extent, what's the secret to, to getting guys over the finish line? We've seen a lot of prospects come through here and, and kind of flame out, but what is kind of the secret sauce to get a guy to be, um, you know, a homegrown stud in a rotation? Hey, gosh, it's the hardest thing I think to do in sports is to continue to build that pipeline of pitching. We were very fortunate during my time in Cleveland to have some you know, really great people working on it, some really great players, you know, helping mm -hmm. some coaches 
it's really what I talked about before. It's the team of people that help with that and an open-mindedness, you know, to, to growth. Actually, I'll talk about a, a player that's right on the Red Sox roster right now who's at a different stage of his career, but watching Corey Kluber after we acquired him via trade in Cleveland and him grow and develop and lean into some new things and, and adjusting who he was as a pitcher, you know, that, that rely, he relied on himself first and foremost, right? He gets all the credit, but the support of the coaching staff and some of the, some of the analysts along the way that could help him with some things to, to help undercover what was the best version of who he was. That's what you're hunt, constantly hunting. And I think when I got over to Minnesota, that's what we were trying to build. And you know, we had some path, we had some progress going kind of early, uh, made some trades along the way to, to acquire guys. It's not always just about draft and developer international sign. It's about sometimes trading for those guys. Here in Minnesota, we've had that with a young Joe Ryan coming over or Joan Duran back when we got him in A-ball and getting him on that same path. Obviously, COVID hit everybody differently and the uniqueness of the minor leagues, I think still to this day, probably isn't fully appreciated. The challenges of kind of guys going through those years and not having a season and coming back and having a little bit of a truncated season the next so for us, it's all about building the plan, individualizing it. Everyone talks about analytics and sports. It's all about getting someone their plan that helps them be the best version of themselves. There's no cookie cutter to it. There's no everyone has to be a certain way. And we have to individualize the plan for every pitcher. If you do that well and you, you amplify what one guy does well, you find a way to get him there and, and hopefully continue to build that pipeline. We're finally experiencing some of that in Minnesota now, and I, I think we need to continue that push with some young players along the way. Derek, developing young pitching is something that 30 major league general managers and president of baseball operations want to do uh, because otherwise it is a very expensive thing to try to find either in the trade market or through free agency. But I'm wondering in your experience in Cleveland and Minnesota, who I think would be uh, labeled either small or mid-market size franchises, is it even more essential because of the expense of, of elite starting pitching to be able to get some homegrown arms of your for yourself? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, for, for as you said, small to mid-market clubs, you know, the lifeblood of your teams is to be able to develop and, and continue to have those players coming up uh, as part of your pipeline. That's true, certainly in the big markets too. Boston will tell you that, New York will tell you that, you know, all the big markets will tell you the same. But I think at the end of the day, you know, there are some maybe other variables and other levers you can pull with different payroll sizes that, that change that dynamic some for, uh, for the way we think about it is we constantly have to be building that pipeline. We have to have guys come on and step up. So when you make those difficult decisions at the trade deadline, when you have to trade away you know, players that you like, I mean, when we traded for Joe Ryan, we were trading away at the end of the season of Nelson Cruz. He was critical to who we were uh, at, from our identity to, to the leadership in the clubhouse. You know, you're taking a hit there, but you're trading for someone that you hope can be a, an established young player for you for the next six plus years ultimately. And, and those are difficult decisions. The hardest part of this job for sure, but building that pipeline of talent is the most important thing you do in these, in these markets. With, with a mid market team, you have to pick and choose to your big contractual expenditures. You can't go out and bid for everybody out there. You don't have the resources to do that financially. You did this past year go out and re-sign Carlos Correa, who took a, uh, to put it bluntly, circuitous route back to you after signing a deal with San Francisco, signing another deal with the Mets. Both of those were voided, and he ended back with you. What was that pursuit like, and what is your evaluation of him halfway through year two with the Twins? 
Yeah, you know, a well-documented, unique free agent period. I don't know that we'll ever see another one like that. I'm not sure I want to live through another one like that personally. So <laughs> on, on that front, but you know, it was it was it was a unique journey. But I will say this: we had a re- really unique opportunity to get Carlos in a year ago, uh, coming out of the lockout late in that process. A credit to the Polat family, and they're willing to invest in that 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 opportunity. And ultimately, it turned into a one-year deal, which was the intent of the structure initially. As we went into free agency again, we knew what Carlos was in our clubhouse, how he led, how he was, how he was as a teammate. And when you look at a young kid, he was 27 years old for us. So a 28-year-old shortstop guy who has played at the, at the pinnacle of this game in World Series games, has played well in playoff games. You want leaders like that who can help your young players continue to grow and develop. And you need that shining light up there. And he got off to a slow start at the beginning of this year. But maybe to, to answer your question more directly, Sean, he got off to that slow start. He's played a lot better of late. Uh, he's really in a good, a good place. He's played excellent defense throughout that whole time. And he's also led inside the clubhouse. He's the first guy to take a microphone when he's standing in front of you all or he's standing in front of the TV cameras and he's got to find a way to answer some tough questions. That's the kind of leadership that you want in that clubhouse that you know you need through the tough times because you're going to have 162 games, multiple seasons. What that looks like, you need those types of players who stand up and say, you know, I'm owning some of our struggle. And ultimately, that's what he does for us and hopefully will continue to do for a long time. Another guy that you signed over the offseason, someone that's very uh, familiar to us covering the Red Sox and Christian Vasquez. I know he waited till last night against his former team to hit a big homer in a big spot there. Um, What drew you to Christian? Uh, and is this a guy that you had interest in, you know, dating back as a as a trade candidate the last few years, especially at last year's deadline when the Red Sox ended up trading him to Houston? Yeah, you know, Christian's someone who I had always heard about from a distance. You know, the 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 pride he takes in leading the pitching staff and and the work he does behind the plate, um, and ultimately, you know, the hitting side too. He's can, he's had moments, obviously a big one last night. He's he's been another guy who struggled a little bit out to shoot. He'd be the first to say it, but I would tell you that. The things he's done behind the scenes with our pitching staff, the way he leans into that preparation, the way he helps Ryan Jeffers, a good young catcher for us that's kind of a tandem with him right now. Uh, No team goes through a season with one catcher anymore. That's just not the way it works. The the realities and the demands of that position are significant. But we made, I I think I said this before, we made Carlos Correa the first priority as we started the offseason. Christian was maybe the second call I made at that point to try and make sure that we were, we were engaged in that market. Catching is a hard position. You know, it's, it's very difficult when you look at the offensive side of it across the game, but leaning into leading a staff and ultimately he's led one of the best pitching staffs in baseball this year. I think a lot of credit goes to him. He's thought about the advanced prep and the planning and how to navigate a guy through a lineup, you know, a few times through this, through the game. Uh, He's been a great addition for us both inside the clubhouse and, and with the pitching staff. Is he particularly helpful against the Red Sox? Like, is he, you know, the, the advanced meetings against guys that he was former teammates with, or especially pitchers he caught? Is that is that a real thing, or is it just kind of even out over the course of, you know, every, obviously the Red Sox know him, he knows the team, things like that? Yeah, I think there's certain situations where that can be helpful, right? Where a, a catcher who knows a guy's arsenal, what he likes to do, what he likes to throw, how he likes to attack. But I think, as we all know in this game, these guys evolve every year, right? You know, there's a new pitch. There's a new way of attacking left-handed hitters. There's maybe something he's adjusted or adapted. You have to, you have to evolve to survive at the big league level. And ultimately that can, um, that can go away quickly. You know, the knowledge that one has, but maybe in the early going for Christian, he definitely, for guys he's seen before guys, he's caught guys, he's been around. It helps you a little bit in the preparation side. Well, when the Red Sox traded into Houston at the deadline, sent them across the way last year. Remember, they kicked him out of the advance meetings uh, before that game as that was getting finalized. So uh, they, uh, he's not going to try to sneak in this week. 
Yeah, it's 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 part of it for sure. You know, you, you the, all of the little advantages that you're looking for through the course of a season, uh, you never want to give away maybe some of those secrets as to how you're advancing uh, the other side. Right. Derek, we're, we're still about maybe uh, close to six weeks from the trade deadline this season. Uh, a lot can happen between now and then. Uh, you're concurrently preparing for the draft. The all-star break is coming up. So I know we're asking you to look into the crystal ball a little bit, but given the parity that we see throughout the game and so few teams clearly out of contention, I think you would look at the American league and say only Oakland and Kansas city at this point would be considered non-playoff teams. What does that do to your expectations for the deadline? Does it make it a seller's market with so few teams uh, in a position to sell off players? Well, Sean, it's a great question, and it's something that we are prepping. Everyone's prepping for to some degree. Uh, I would say my take on that is it might mean this is a year where you see a little bit more movement between buyers. You know, as you just said, there's so many teams that are in it, uh, so many teams that are competing for that. We consider ourselves right in the middle of that. I know the Red Sox do too. So when you look at that, you know, no matter what, you, you're gonna you're gonna say, okay, there may be few sell opportunities, and as you've said, maybe the clear sellers have less of what you need from a position standpoint or, or what's available on the roster. So yeah, while there may be some natural matches there, uh, we may need to be looking at other, other buyers and saying, Hey, we're mixing and matching here. You may have more depth at one position than we do. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to trade from an area of depth from our roster to potentially improve both clubs uh, that in, in ways that you wouldn't normally see. We've done that before. Uh, we've been creative in that way in the past. Uh, we may need to go down that path again. What, what about the uh, your own division? As we record this, um, you're in the unique position of having a sub-500 record, if only by a game, and yet you're still in first place in the American League Central. Um, what's that dynamic like when you, know, you look at five teams in the East, all with winning records, including the Red Sox, who are fifth, but a few games over 500, and then all five teams in your division uh, with a losing record, what what does that do to your expectations? To what you see unfolding here over the final three and a half months? Yeah, you know when we look at it, and, and certainly recognize that from all the, we keep an eye on every other division. But one thing that I learned early in my career, this is something that I've thought about going back to Mark Spiro and Chris Ante, but also Terry Francona was control what you can control, which is right in front of you, and that's your roster, your team, and and what that looks like. I try not to scoreboard watch too much because no matter what I do, when I look down the right field line of that scoreboard, I can't, I can't control what's going to happen in those other games. So our focus has been on, you know, our division is competitive. We feel like Cleveland's always been good for a long time. Know them well. That Chicago team has some real talent and, and depth to the roster. We know that Detroit and Kansas city are younger and, and have different rosters, but uh, you never know when a young team kind of hits its stride at the right time. So, we know this is going to be a competitive division to the end. We feel we're right there. We hope we're right there. We know we have the talent to do it. We feel we haven't played quite to our expectations from a, from a record standpoint. We pitched well. We haven't hit as well as we would have expected. If we can get all of those things going, I feel like we're going to be right to the, there to the end. So we prep as buyers. We prep as a team that hopefully is going to augment our roster in a positive way. But most of what is going to be the success or the failure of the Minnesota Twins is presently in that clubhouse. That's the reality. We know that. And ultimately, those guys need to perform to the best of their abilities. If we can do that, hopefully we'll shake out at the top of the Central at the end of the year. 
Now, Sean alluded to a lot of parity across baseball this year, and, and we've seen that um, you know, strong divisions here, weaker divisions, other places. What impact do you think that the new balance schedule has had on, on how records are shaking out or, or where teams are positioned at this point? I think, Chris, exactly what you just said there is, is that parity is showing up with some of that balance in the schedule. You're seeing more teams play across divisions. Maybe that helps where there's a couple of clubs from, from other divisions that have been in a tougher division for a while, getting some of those games outside of that division. Uh, it brings those records together. So the good news, I think, from a, from a global industry perspective, I hope, is that at the end of the year, you know, maybe not 30 clubs, but, but hey, let's hope it's in the mid-20s or upper 20s that feel like they're in it to the end. That's good for fan bases. That's good for our game. That's good for, you know, the rosters and the clubhouses because no one likes to be out of it in September and, mm -hmm. and not enjoy those, those last month of games. And ultimately, hopefully, there's more teams involved and in the mix all the way to the end. Derek, I, I have a theory about that parody, and I'm wondering what your reaction is to it. And that is when you look at geographically, the two central divisions have a lot of parity where teams are right around 500. And maybe the better teams in the game are on each coast, east and west, whether it's Dodgers, Yankees, uh you know, take your pick there. But I'm wondering with this balanced schedule where you're having to play more games out of your division and against teams with bigger payrolls in bigger markets like Boston and LA and San Francisco and New York and all of that. Um, are, are, are we going to get locked into this where often the two central divisions in both leagues are going to struggle because you have to play those teams with better resources and that's going to maybe depress your win total because as smaller market and medium market teams you can't spend with those guys yeah you know it, it's it's a factor it's something that's part of it it gets back to the you know when we look at it we can control we can control within the resources of what we have but i will say that there's no denying a linkage you know uh, across the industry broadly around uh, payrolls and, and and potential comp comp competitiveness right we understand that there are teams that have done a heck of a job. I look down at Tampa and I look at Cleveland and other teams that over a lot of years have found a way to sustain, you know, really, really good performance uh, despite not being in that payroll tier. But in aggregate, you know, there's no other way to describe it. When you look at it from a 30,000 foot view, payroll is going to have that, um, that impact. So we recognize there are smaller aggregate payrolls in the central divisions than there are in the coasts. Uh, and maybe there is something to what you're saying, Sean. I think we'll have to see how that shakes out over time uh, and ultimately see how, how it impacts the playoffs and, and winning in the playoffs. Last one I have is a simple one. The Red Sox won't tell us who's pitching Thursday. So do you guys have any idea? Won't tell us either. So maybe maybe you can find a way. I'll bug uh, Heim or maybe find Alex along the way and see well, if I can uh, gain they, any scoop. It's the competitive advantage for, you know, not – so you guys don't know, but we'd love to know. Get a little – get a headline out of it. But You know, it's uh, funny, Chris. It's funny, Chris. That That's that's the reality of today's game, right? With more bullpen games, we just played a few games over the weekend where I think uh, one of the guys started two of the games. So of the four games we played, it, it ultimately, you know, because of the way the bullpen days go, you face a starter the same twice in four games. So it's the uniqueness of, of the way the, the, the game works these days. And we'll figure it out by the time we get to Thursday. I can tell you that. Yeah, no consideration for the journalists who cover the team. That's 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 the big issue. But that's uh, it's Derek Falvey. We appreciate your time. Three more games against the Red Sox this week, and uh, maybe see you down the road in October. Thanks for having me on, guys. Always appreciate it.